So Matthew chapter 16, 13 reads this. Listen to the words of God. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let us pray and ask God for his help. Father, we, we're grateful that this morning we get to gather as the redeemed, blood-bought people of the King. Lord, as we do that and as we now sit under the teaching of your word, as we seek to grow in holiness, grow in our understanding of who you've called us to be, as the people that have been set apart for good works that have been prepared beforehand. Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would transform our hearts, that each person in here today would leave different than they walked in. Father, I pray that those that walked in heavy laden, burdened by the weight of their sin would find rest in Christ. Lord, I pray that those that walked in haughty, prideful, arrogant, the proud would be humbled by Jesus's authority. Lord, I ask that you would unify us together during this time. So Father, simply we ask what we know not, you would teach us, and what we are not, you would make us, and what we have not, you would give us by your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name, God's people said, amen. So as I mentioned, uh, today we're going to continue in our study of the distinctives of our church. And as a reminder, the goal of this study is to help us to understand some of the biblical convictions and details that define our church. And let me just say that these details are not just minor details that we can quickly ignore. Instead, I believe they affect the way the church functions and interacts with one another. Their importance is why it's valuable for us to pause, take a break, and to really evaluate where we are as a church. As I mentioned last week, right, you think of getting too far downstream from where you want to be. The farther you go, the harder it is to get back to that point. 
So the goal is to help us to understand these details so we can better serve one another and our community. Last week, uh, we spent the morning looking at the biblical definition of church leadership, uh, really the responsibilities of elders as we work towards a better understanding of what exactly elders are and what are they called to do as they help to lead the church. And today, we're going to unpack the topic of the congregational authority. Remember I said, hey, we're going we're gonna to turn the tables on all of us as a whole. Wanted to start off as, hey, this is what you should expect from your elders, your leaders. Uh, if you were not here for that, uh, go back, listen to it on Spotify, listen to it on our YouTube page. Uh, very helpful for you. Or you can also grab uh, one of the books in the back. But today as we look at really like what and how and what is the congregation's authority, um, we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of really like what church polity is, okay? And church polity is just a fancy way of saying church governance, or more or less the kind of organizational structure within a church. Now, average churchgoers don't think of church polity too often, but they should. Here's why. Church Polity has a significant effect on discipleship, has an effect on how we engage with one another as a church family. And the polity that our church exercises and the polity that I will attempt to present as prescriptive in the Bible is a structure called elder-led congregationalism. Elder-led congregationalism. You're going to hear that a lot. Uh, during this sermon, but elder-led congregationalism is uh, what we're going to be talking about this morning. Now, uh, I in no way, shape, or form intend to insult or belittle other churches that operate differently, all right? That's a precursor. I'm not trying to insult them, don't want to belittle them. There are many faithful brothers and sisters who love the Lord, who are a part of churches that just operate a little differently, and that's okay. Um, our Presbyterian brothers, um, I have many friends that are Presbyterian, and uh, we have this healthy argument uh, often. And I believe that uh, what the Bible teaches is what we will, um, and the way that we operate, and I will continue to contend uh, for that until uh, the Holy Spirit convicts me otherwise. But the reason why we practice that in this type of authority, polity within the church is because we believe that's what the Bible teaches. So I want to give you an outline really quickly as we seek to understand, understand the congregation's authority today. So this is, I got four points for us. Uh, we're going to walk through this and uh, really uh, there's, there's a lot that could be said about this. There's a lot of different things. There's a lot of uh, different um, areas that I just don't have the time to talk about. Uh, once again, really commend the book to you. Uh, grab one of those if you want to learn more. But here's the outline, four points for us. Number one, I'm going to uh, try to define elder-led congregationalism. So number one, we'll see a definition of elder-led congregationalism. Number two, a biblical warrant 
for elder-led congregationalism. It's the biblical warrant for elder-led congregationalism. And then number three, the authority and responsibilities of the elders and the church. Kind of that harmony. How does that work together? And then fourth, finally, we'll see some practical implications of elder-led congregationalism. All right, so all about elder-led congregationalism, how we operate as a church. Uh, Maybe there's some, we had about 23 at the uh, new members class yesterday. Uh, So some of this is fresh on your minds. Uh, We just walked through uh, kind of our constitution and how we engage with one another. So uh, you're going to get a double dose of this. This is going to be a good reminder uh, to those that maybe were our founding members that first constituted together. Um, But hopefully we all come to a better understanding of what elder-led congregationalism is as we seek to glorify God uh, within this church family. So let's start with a definition of elder-led congregationalism. I quote from Bobby Jameson. I like his definition. I couldn't think of one better, so I'm going to use it. Giving him credit, Bobby Jameson says, the scriptural conviction, all right, this is what elder-led congregationalism is. I quote, the scriptural conviction that the gathered church as a whole, as led by their elders, has final earthly authority to render judgment about what constitutes a true gospel confession, and who is a true gospel confessor. I'll say that again. Elder-led congregationalism is the scriptural conviction that the gathered church as a whole, as led by their elders, has the final earthly authority to render judgment about what constitutes a true gospel confession, and who is a true gospel confessor. Essentially, what this means is that the final authority of a church's gospel faithfulness rests not just with the leaders of the church. It's not just the leaders, the elders, the deacons, the ministry leads, but rather with the entire membership, the the gathered assembly of the church. And this especially takes place in two categories, the who and the what of the gospel. Now, the who of the gospel would be those that profess to be Christians, those that say, hey, I'm a Christian, like I I believe in Jesus Christ. The what of the gospel would be really what the church would then believe as their kind of the statement of faith. Our confession, we are a confessional church. We didn't make up our own confession. Uh, We adopted a a tried and true confession, the 1853 New Hampshire Confession of Faith. Some really smart people gathered around. They they wrote it, and uh, churches have um, held to that confession for uh, a few centuries now. So uh, that's what we do as a church, and that's what we would say that as long as everything is within the bounds of that confession, then we are holding true to what 
the gospel is. In her most simplest form, to simplify it for us, the church exercises authority with the who of the gospel when she corporately accepts members or exercises church discipline. Uh, We're going to talk about that next week, so I'm not going to spend a a lot of time on that, but uh, we believe that is a part of uh, a healthy church is church discipline. And then the church exercises authority with the what of the gospel when, like I said, they adopt a statement of faith and then work to ensure that the statement of faith is maintained and observed by whoever teaches. So that could be in any area, small groups, Sunday school, teachers that are elder teachers. Now we're going to circle back to those categories in a moment when we look at the practical implications. But I just want to plant little seeds that hopefully will be watered as we look at now the scriptural warrant for this type of authority. So, in summary, elder-led congregationalism is the model that says the whole church, the meaning the members of the church, is responsible for the who and what of the gospel of that church and has the authority and responsibility to ensure the authenticity and faithfulness of gospel professors, those that say they're Christians, and gospel beliefs. So where do we get this? This is just something that, you know, someone came up with sometime and thought, like, this is a good idea. Is it just something that sounds good and holy? Is it just a way to get the responsibility off of church leadership? What causes Christians to practice elder-led congregationalism? Why have they practiced it for centuries? Now, as I said when I started, uh, as a church, we are under the authority of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at that. And and essentially, we are under the authority, the foremost authority, right now, earthly, through his written word. So the authority of Christ through his word expressed to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and so we work together to ensure that is what we are. So we submit to what God's word teaches, no matter what we like, think, what's easier, right? Uh, humans, we like the path of least resistance. It would probably be a lot easier. This is probably why a lot of churches do it. For just the staff and the elders just to make decisions and say, hey, this is what's going to happen. If you don't like it, go. That's what a lot of churches do. That's probably not the way Jesus intended it. And let's look why. Number two, our second point, we're going to get into that now, our biblical warrant for elder-led congregationalism. Now that we have a definition of what it is, kind of seeing, hey, this is what it means. Now, let's turn, uh, or you should be there, look down to Matthew chapter 16. And remember, uh, what is happening in this section of Scripture before we really double-click on uh, verses 18 and 19 here? What's, what's going on here? So we, we see that in verses 13 through 16, Jesus has asked his disciples, like, hey, who does everyone say that I am, right? There's a lot of chatter about who this Jesus guy is. 
a lot of people uh, in the community, a lot of people that are witnessing, that are, are hearing rumors spread, they're, they're perpetuating ideas about who Jesus Christ is, and most of them are wrong. Uh, some of them say, what, he's John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Uh, some say he's Jeremiah or he's just one of the prophets. No one really knows outside exactly who Jesus is. So what does Jesus do? He looks at his disciples. He says, who do you say that I am? Who am I? Listen, I don't care what everyone else says. I don't care what you have heard. You have now been with me. You have sat with me. I have taught you. You have followed me. You've witnessed my miracles. Who am I? Then our boy Peter speaks up, and he says in verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter makes an extraordinary confession here, right? I mean, this is monumental. He says, Jesus, you are the Messiah that we have been waiting for. You are essentially him, and you are the son of God. You are God in flesh. Now, that is a, a once again, a monumental statement here. It's a monumental confession. We know that Peter got it right because what does Jesus tell him? <laughs> You're right. Says God the Father has given you the power to see this. He says it isn't something that can happen naturally through flesh and blood. He says this type of confession which you have just confessed to, is supernatural. He says, you didn't come up with this on your own. The Father has given it to you. That's a, another sermon for another day. But the implications are essential as we understand this passage in relation to elder-led congregationalism. Because then what? Moving forward to verses 18 through 19, Jesus makes a definitive declaration and then distributes some authority here. We need to pay attention. He says in verse 18, look there with me. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I want to first take notice to what Jesus says here. He says, I will build my church. Now, this and Matthew 18 are the only two places where Jesus uses the word church. So probably important that we pay attention here, kind of figure out, hey, what's going on? Because this, is, this explicitly speaks to us. And what does he mean? I mean, we've got to answer this question. This has been an argument uh, throughout many years. Does he mean that he's going to build his church on, on, on Peter? No. The building is a result of something. There's something that happens here. There's two parts, I would say, that are essential to us for us understanding uh, what he means by I will build 
my church. Number one, I would say, is Jesus's authority. He says, I will build my church. Brothers and sisters, we must remember that the church is Christ's church. It is the people that he died for. That, as we read earlier, he predestined before the foundations of the earth. That God sought and he bought. Paying the ransom for all that we owed to him. Jesus absorbs the wrath of sinners. In, <laughs> amen. In order that we might have a right relationship with our creator. Jesus dies for these people. He gives his life a ransom for many. And then we must remember in Matthew 28, right, before the instructions of the great commission that we're familiar with, what does Jesus say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I mean, Jesus has ultimate authority here. We are his possession. The church is his people. He said, mine. Colossians 2, 9 through 10 Paul reminds the church in Colossae, he says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. There's many other places in Scripture we could look at for the authority to, to really build a framework on the authority of Jesus Christ over all things. But we first must take notice, as we see here, that all authority starts with the authority of King Jesus. I mean, he has it by default. He possesses it. And because of his possession of authority, he can then distribute authority as he pleases. I cannot give you something that I do not possess. Hair. I don't have it. So the building that takes place is first a result of Jesus' authority. And then second, the building and distribution of authority is, I would say, a result of the confession of Christ's lordship. It's based on the confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. So secondly, we see that Jesus says, hey, we will, I will build my church with Peter as a result of the confession Peter makes as really a representative of the apostles here. I mean, he's talking to the whole group. Peter just speaks up. He's always the one that, that spoke up, right? Always the one cutting off ears and, you know, stepping out, doing things. And although Peter was a leader of leaders and played a tremendous role in the early church, Jesus doesn't make him the pope here. Okay, that's not what is happening. Um, I I've did a lot of studying on this uh, in, in, for many years, and I think the ES, if you have the ESV study Bible, I think they give one of the most succinct kind of definitions here and descriptions of, of why uh, we can't take that Jesus makes Peter the pope here. I'm just going to read that for us. Um, maybe it'll be helpful to you, maybe not. Um, but here's what the ESV Study Bible notes. 
Jesus' statement did not mean that Peter would have greater authority than the other apostles. Indeed, Paul corrects Peter publicly, if you remember that, in Galatians chapter 2. Nor did it mean that he would be infallible in his teaching. Remember, Jesus rebukes Peter in Matthew chapter 16. Nor did it imply anything about a special office for Peter or successors to such an office. Certainly in the first half of Acts, Peter appears as the spokesman and leader of the Jerusalem church. But he is still sent by other apostles to Samaria. He has to give an account for his work. We see that in Acts chapter 11. And Peter is presented as having only one voice at the Jerusalem council. If you remember that story, right? And then if you remember, James actually gives the final decisive word there. And though Peter certainly has a central role in the establishment of the church, he disappears from the narrative of Acts in chapter 15 of Acts. End quote there. So I would just sum everything up and I would stand under the conviction that the confession is what holds the greatest weight here. It is the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not Peter himself that Jesus says that's what will then build the church. Uh, furthermore, the word Jesus uses for church is the Greek word ekklesia. You've probably heard this before. Uh, this word church means the called out ones. It means uh, an assembly of people. So Jesus is essentially speaking of a group of people that following Peter's example of confessing Jesus as Lord will be victorious against the schemes of hell. He says the gates of hell won't prevail. So brothers and sisters, this means that the church is absolutely victorious. I know sometimes we feel as if the, the, the devil has a grip on our lives. And in those situations, we need to evaluate our profession of faith. We need to ensure that we are in the faith, examine ourselves. But ultimately and finally, the church will prevail. The church is victorious because of Christ. There's no defense that can stop the church. Jesus has secured the victory in his life, his death, and resurrection. And Scripture tells us he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, now mediating on our behalf. Praise be to God. And then in verse 19 here, we read that there is something that's given to this victorious group of people. There's something that happens now. So, there's a group that proclaim Christ, confess him as Lord, that says he has authority over all things. He is the Messiah. He is God in flesh, come to die for us. And it is only by faith in Christ that we are able to attain salvation. And then something happens. So Jesus says in 19, look there with me. He says, 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Once again, we see that you cannot give something you don't possess. Jesus has it. He is authoritative here. He says, I'm going to give them to you. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So what are these keys? We all know that keys open doors, right? There is also some sense of authority with keys, right? Waiting on the person with the keys to get in the door. You know, there's there's some sense of uh, protection that is provided there. And simply put, these keys represent the authority here to identify who is in and who is out of the kingdom. The earthly authority to identify who was in and who was out of the kingdom. Remember our definition, right? That the church has been given earthly authority to render judgment about what constitutes a true gospel confession and who is a true gospel confessor. So the church has the authority to Uh, look at this earthly identification of what is already happening in heaven. He said, you bind on earth what is bound in heaven. Loosed on earth what is loosed in heaven. Uh, Really meaning that the church verbalizes what God has already said about a person. Right? This happens all the time. People profess that they're Christians. Three months, six months, a year goes by, and their life shows absolutely no fruit of regeneration. They, they show no fruit. They're living in unrepentant sin, continuing to just return to the same sin, continuing to uh, show no signs of repentance, of even wanting to change making excuses for it, justifying it because of what culture says, what the world says is okay. And the church has the responsibility and authority to identify that person as a believer, a true professor of Christ, or a non-believer. True professors of Christ, true Confessions will show fruits of regeneration. Praise be to God. Our, our lives change. We grow. We, we are sanctified by the work of the Spirit in our lives. We are made new. Will we still stumble and fall? Yes. Will we still have situations in our lives that we're not proud of? Yes. But the gospel-centered life is a life of confession and repentance. And repentance meaning we run and turn, we turn and run away from the sin we've been confronted by. I mean, Jesus gets very drastic on what we should do. I mean, there's some metaphorical, illustrative language, I would say, in Scripture that says, like, hey, your right hand... Cut it off. Your right hand causes you to sin. Cut it off. Like, do whatever it takes to get 
away from sin. And your life connected to a local church in real community with real people will ensure and help to ensure, rather, that those who say they are Christians will continue to pursue that type of life, a life of confession and repentance and war on sin. The key here is to see who has this authority, though. I mean, that's a fighting sin, making war on sin, how we engage with sin as believers, another sermon, another day. What I want us to see here is that who does Jesus give the authority to? It's not the elders alone. It's not the pope or the bishop. It's not, he doesn't say it's it's some council that, you know, is an outside board that speaks in and kind of tells people what they should and should not do. He gives the keys of the kingdom to the, say it with me, the church. The church. I'm just, I'm just the messenger, all right? Just delivering the mail. Thankfully, Jesus shows us how this is played out, too. Remember I mentioned that uh, there's another place where Jesus actually uh, says the word church. So if you look over to Matthew chapter 18, I turn over a couple chapters there. We're all familiar with this, and we're going to talk about this more next week as we talk about church discipline. We'll really exegete this passage to really see what the goal of church discipline is, what it is, what the goal is, how it works within the life of a church. But just to really see how this is practically played out, a step-by-step guide, let's look at verses 15 through 20. I'm going to read this for us and just make a couple of Quick observations here. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Uh, contrary to popular belief and teaching, that passage and when he says where two or three are gathered is not a passage on prayer meetings. I'll leave that right there for you. Now, like I said, we're not going to spend time exegeting this text today. We're going to look at this more next week. But let's just look really quickly about the steps that are given here on how this is to be played out. If there is someone that is walking in unrepentant sin, we see three steps given here. Number one, there's individual confrontation. So you go to him or her and you say, hey, brother, hey, sister, 
um, I, I noticed this, and or you sinned against me personally, and I'd like to talk to you about it. Okay? That's step one. Uh, if they don't receive that correction, number two is what? There's group confrontation. So you, you take a couple or one or two, you, you go and you say, hey, uh, brother, sister, um, there's that issue we talked about at first. Now, like, you're still not repentant. Um, I'm really worried about you. And um, so, you know, what are we going to do here? Uh, if said brother or sister does not receive that correction, then what do we do? We, we take it to the church. The church. He doesn't say go to the pope. He doesn't say go to the bishop. He doesn't say go to the pastors alone. He says take it to the church. The whole church gets involved, and they collectively make a decision. They render judgment here. Now, most certainly, elders lead in these endeavors. That is why it's called elder-led congregationalism. But final authority, brothers and sisters, I would urge you to consider is given to the church. It's what the scripture says here. And we see the same phrase used here, right, regarding these keys to, keys to the kingdom. He says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And what is this based on? Once again, we see it's based on the authority of Jesus Christ. He says in 19 and 20, again, I say to you, if two or three or two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name. Key phrase there. There am I among them. And they gather in Jesus' name by confessing Jesus as Lord. He says, I'm among you. I am with you, helping, guiding the people that are mine. Let me just quickly provide us with two other examples of this played out in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul addresses some real bad sin happening in the church in Corinth. There's a man sleeping with his stepmother. And first, Paul condemns the church for tolerating it. He says, what are you doing? Why would you let this go on? And then he exhorts them to action. And he says in verses 3 through 5, you can read this later, he says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, as if present. And then he says, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing, speaking of the incident. And then he says in verse 4, he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So who is he talking to here? The church, the assembly, the body assembled. When are they to exercise discipline here? When they are assembled, when they are together in the name of the Lord Jesus 
Christ. Another quick place we see the church charged with a level of authority is in Galatians chapter 1. You can write that down, um, look at that later. But he says in verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, remember Paul talking to the church in Galatia, he says, I am astonished that you, speaking to the church, are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. We see what's going on here. There's people that are coming in, they're teaching a false gospel. And then, like, Paul turns the hands of really the authority here, and he tells the church in verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Essentially saying, let him be damned. Those are heavy words. And Paul's telling the church, like, hey, if I even do this, an apostle, hold me accountable. Paul essentially says, listen, don't allow false teachers among you. Don't allow them to continue to teach. He says it is their responsibility to be aware and hold these teachers accountable. And he's addressing the church as a whole. He says, I'm astonished that you, the church, are deserting the gospel and allowing these false teachers to continue to teach. There's much that can be said here. But concluding this point, we can say that elder-led congregationalism has a strong biblical warrant in numerous places in the New Testament where we see the gathered church exercising authority over matters of gospel faithfulness. Brings us to our third point. We'll move through these last two a little quicker. I wanted to just make sure we really saw this uh, biblical warrant of elder-led congregationalism. So our third point, the authority and responsibility of the elders in the church. So how does this work together? How is it played out? Like I said, we looked last week at the responsibility of elders. We see that there is real and present need for faithful elder uh, under shepherds of Jesus's church. And there is a responsibility within the church to then oversee the keys of the kingdom, which have then been given to them by Jesus. So how do these two roles work together? How do we harmonize these two things? How do we harmonize, Hebrews 13 says, submit to your leaders, obey them, and you have a responsibility to hold them accountable. Listen, I would say that understanding the harmony of these is essential to discipleship. I would lovingly argue with any that one of the main reasons there is such a lack of discipleship in the church today is because we have a, we have a major malfunction in understanding this practice. How Jesus intended his church to function. How these two roles harmonize with one another. And I might step on some toes right here, but that's all right. 
a lot of people treat the church in uh, one or two ways, okay? Um, first way, they treat church as a country club, okay? And the country club church member or church attendee kind of says this, like, okay, the, the church is uh, kind of like a club. I pay my dues. I, you know, I kind of show up when I want to. And, you know, I, I just kind of sign up, right? It, it's just kind of this, you know, connection with some people, maybe a little like-minded, and we kind of do some stuff every once in a while. And, you know, it's very optional for my participation. Second, I would say, view of church and practice of many churches is the business model. This is very prevalent in our day. What this model says is like the ministry, the the work of the ministry is all done by the staff, the professionals, the, the, the church, the pastors, the ministry leaders, right? Like, that's where the, the ministry happens. Oh, well, we pay John to do uh, this. You know, that's, that's his job to really oversee outreach. Really, that's, that's his job. That's, that's their job. That's staff member Joe that does X, Y, Z. And while there are roles in the church and there's organizational structure, brothers and sisters, I would just really um, commend you to think about your involvement within a church differently. I would say that the church is more like, think of your favorite sport, your favorite sports team, um, maybe just a sport you know if you're not a sports person, right? The, The sport you're most familiar with. In a sport, you have players, you have coaches, you have refs, you have manager. I mean, you've got all these different components that work together to make that sport a sport, to, to ensure that the, the rules, regulations are observed or followed. There are different people that have different roles within that, but it all works together. Elders teach. Elders help you, church members, to do a job. We all have a job to do in order to make the game possible. In the same way in the church, the elder-led congregationalism gives the church a job and responsibility for one another to ensure that we are all working together to maintain the confession of who we are and what we are. Elders have a very distinct job description. And unfortunately, many have gotten it wrong. We've, we've uh, turned the, the description upside down. And I just want to remind you what uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, he says in verses 11 through 13, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to do everything. That's not what he says. He says in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God 
to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. Who does the work here? The saints, the church, the people of God. Elder's job is to lead the church by teaching what it means to do the work of ministry by the way we live, we model it, and by what we say, by what we teach. And our job is to carry this out, and your job, our job together is to carry this out daily, right? We do it in our homes, the way we serve our families and our communities, the way we serve our neighbors, those around us. In our jobs, the way we serve each other as a church. Um, another helpful illustration, I would say, when you think about the responsibility that now a church member has in a local church, is think of uh, maybe you've rented a, an apartment or a home, right? And then if you've owned a home, when you rent something, Man, there's a level of responsibility, right? But I didn't take as much pride and ownership and put more attention into what I was doing within the home until I owned it. You know, rental, you call the manager, you call the owner, you say, hey, uh, this is leaking, that, hey, come fix it. You don't have that opportunity with home ownership. Some of you new homeowners are like, I know. It's tough, but you got, you got some skin in the game. You're a stakeholder there. And in the same way, the church operating the way Jesus intended it to operate is that we all have a part to play because guess what? We are all owners. We work together in maintaining what Jesus has given us the authority to do. Finally, I close just some practical implications of the elder-led congregationalism, right? So what it looks like. And like I said, we, we could talk about this for hours and hours. And I invite conversation um, for this, questions. Once again, grab one of those little books. They're super helpful. Um, and any of our elders, uh, most of our church members will be able to help you through this as well. Um, if you're new and you're just wondering uh, what it looks like. But here's just a few things that, uh, that helps us to think through, like, what are, what's the church responsible for? What are elders responsible for? Um, so congregations, uh, responsibilities. Once again, this is not an exhaustive list, but there's just a few, right? So one is just to be present. Attend the weekly gatherings. Attend the Lord's Day gatherings. It's important that you're present, that we're sitting under the teaching of God's word together. We're singing songs. You have gifts to give to others. You have encouragement to give to those around you. Your job is not to just come in and just consume. It's to exercise your giftings when you're with the gathered body. Another um, responsibilities of a congregation is to preserve the gospel. We talked about that a little bit earlier, right? So um, there is an essential component to, to holding one another, elders included, uh, just accountable to what they're teaching, um, what they're saying in conversation. You hear something that doesn't sound right, ask questions. 
hey, I just heard this, just wondering where we're getting that from. I looked over our statement of faith, and like, I don't really see that anywhere. All of a sudden, we're talking about this, but this says that. Another thing is participating in affirming gospel-believing disciples. Um, once again, that would be in accepting you know, members, new members. As if you've been a part of our church, uh, you know that uh, when after uh, mem- uh, new members go through the new members class, uh, then they have an interview with an elder, and then based on the elder's um, interview with them, asking some questions, making sure that they can articulate the gospel, elders getting to know their story so we can better shepherd and serve them and know then how they can serve the church. And then at a members meeting, whatever regularly scheduled members meeting we have, we then present them to the congregation to hey, we believe so-and-so is a true believer. They've been baptized. They can articulate the gospel. And we would recommend them to you as a member. Welcome them, right? And unless you know something that the elders don't know, which we try to give you time to present those um, questions or or concerns beforehand, but say there's something that comes up, uh, or if there's nothing that comes up and there's no other reason that you would think that your elders are leading unbiblically, then you follow your elders there. You follow the counsel of your elders. Another responsibility of the congregation of church members is to disciple one another. We have four elders, okay, and we attempt to shepherd everyone the best we can, but I cannot one-to-one disciple everyone in our congregation. Our elders cannot do one-to-one discipleship with everyone in the congregation. There is needed discipleship within the body of Christ. That's why small groups are important. That's why other gatherings are important. Uh, Women's Bible studies, men's Bible studies, these things are important. And then also one-to-one gatherings. Another responsibility is to share the gospel with non-members. You meet somebody that's new, first time, introduce yourself, church member. Introduce yourself. Seek out the one that you don't recognize on Sunday. Maybe they are a member and you just gained a, a, a friend, but maybe they're not. Maybe they need to hear the truth of the gospel. They need to see it played out in your life. They need to hear it as well. And then, uh, just mentioned this, follow the recognized leaders of the church. Uh, once again, we see that there is a respect, there is a, um, there is sub- a healthy submission that uh, we should do uh, as in, within the church and not make eldering hard for our elders. And that's something that we want to do. We want to practice, we want to care for our elders as well, knowing that they're going to give a stricter, they're going to be uh, given a stricter judgment as we talked about uh, last week. But here's some of the elder responsibilities. Uh, one, elders bear all the same responsibilities as the rest of the church, okay? So everything I just mentioned, uh, that is there. I submit to my fellow elders. Uh, we submit to one another. We love and care for one another. We check in on one another. Hey, man, how's your heart? W- what's going on? Uh, how are you dealing with that situation that we talked about last week? Is everything okay? That's something that we regularly do in our elders' meetings. We Set aside time to, to check in on one another, to hold one another accountable, to disciple one another. Um, another responsibility for elders, as I mentioned last week, is to protect, preserve, and provide. 
for the congregation. It's some of our responsibilities. That's what we've been set apart to do. Uh, another is to shepherd, which those categories fit under. Shepherd the church. If we stop doing that and say it's all you, you you've got to do everything, then we've failed to do our job. Uh, w- another one is we model godly character, teach sound doctrine. So we, we live, we, we show and share right doctrine. We, we live it and we speak it. Another one is just loving and Caring for the church with godly wisdom, with humility, with understanding that uh, there, is no, there are no perfect people here, and there are no perfect elders. We're in this together. We're going to continually, as I mentioned last week, we never want to do this begrudgingly. We want to do this with humility, exercise and authority that God has given to us as we lead and shepherd under the authority of Christ. So in closing, in her most simplest form, the church exercises authority with the who of the gospel when she corporately accepts members or exercises church discipline. The church, too, exercises authority with the what of the gospel when they adopt a statement of faith and then work to ensure that statement of faith is followed by those who teach. Church membership is important. It is essential in the life of a Christian. Participation in the body of Christ, I would say, is commanded. Church online is not real. The gathered body is God's church. Church is not a show. It's not a service. We gather together to worship our Savior. We do it on Sundays because it's the day he rose again. And we celebrate the victory that the gates of hell will not prevail every single Sunday. We have a covenant reminder. God has made a covenant with us through Christ. Praise be to God. So let's continue to gather together to serve one another And be a people that seek to exercise the authority given to us by our Savior as we disciple one another, care for one another, serving one another, as God gives us the ability to do. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of the church. We thank you, God, that this isn't a a country club. It, It isn't an optional events, but it is a people who have been set apart for good works, exercising our gifts, our abilities that you have given to us for the benefit and good of others and for your glory. So, Father, help us to be a church that just operates in a way that would be pleasing to you. We don't have it figured out, God. All we can do is seek to understand your word, what it teaches, so correct us, Lord, when we're wrong. Help us to be humble and to be faithful to the confession that you've given us as you have revealed Christ to us at the proper time. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.